So if we're going to do any innovation from with putting Knob Creek on it, it needs to be in that Knob Creek family. You can't go off and have a rum punch Knob Creek. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. So Who knows? Right? <laughs> uh, I'm around. It, won't we? Uh, Wait till Freddie takes it. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 254 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny, and let's talk about some new releases. We have touched down in Texas. Yes, our first release of Pursuit Series is now available in five different specs retailers across the entire state. Episode 26 is a 15-year-old Tennessee bourbon. Our tasting notes are brown sugar churros with a chocolate caramel dipping sauce. It's got me thinking about desserts already. So listen up, because there's only five stores carrying episode 26 across Texas, and it's only at Specs Retailers. So you've got Dallas at 9500 North Central Expressway and Fort Worth at 2750 South Hewland Street, Austin, Texas, 4970 West Highway 920, San Antonio at 5219 Dezavala, and Houston at 2410 Smith Street. Happy hunting, Texans. With more Pursuit Series news, Episode 24 and 25 are now available on sealbox.com. If you're looking to get your hands on another bourbon with a high age statement, episode 24 is another 15-year-old release that can be shipped nationwide. And this one, it's all chocolate milk. I know many of you are looking for something super unique, and we also have a weeded bourbon from Finger Lakes Distilling, which is our episode 25. Our last two barrels from Finger Lakes went quick, so we're excited to bring another one to you. So go to sealbox.com, search for Pursuit, or you can go to pursuitspirits.com and click the Buy Now button on our website. We also have some other single barrel picks coming in. Our 1792 foolproof and two Buffalo Trace barrels will be landing very soon. So heads up to our Patreon community and pay attention to your emails when they start rolling in. In other release news, Wild Turkey has announced that they are releasing a 17-year-old bottled and bond under the Master's Keep label. The Master's Keep bottled and bond will be a limited release with approximately 14,400 bottles with a suggested retail price of $175. On the train of new releases, the TTB has approved over 180,000 products over the last 12 months through April of 2020. This is about an increase of 5.1% over last year, around 8,700 labels. In beer, there are around 42,000 products that were approved in the last 12 months. Wine, 120,000. In spirits, 17.4,000. However, the one that has the biggest gainer is actually spirits because in beer, the last three months, there was only 10,500, which is actually 21% less than last year. In wine, there were almost 30,000 over the last three months, which is 22% less than last year. And then in spirits, about 4.7 thousand over the last three months, which is an 11.3% increase over last year. Now let's talk about some industry news. Earlier this year, the Indiana Alcohol and Tobacco Commission denied Total Wine a liquor license in the state because it does not meet the state's residency minimum requirements. Under current state law, at least 60% of a company's common stock must be owned by people who have lived in Indiana for five years. In true Total Wine style, the retailer promptly filed lawsuit against the agency. And based on the Supreme Court opinions on Granholm and Total Wine versus Tennessee, the district court's decision will grant the retailer's preliminary injunction prohibiting the state from enforcing its residency requirement. 
This is again one more domino to fall where we will soon see more interstate commerce laws start lifting. And for today's podcast, what can you say? Sitting down with the nose, it's always a treat. Fred and Freddie know they're about as genuine and as real as it comes. In this show, it's going to take a bunch of turns. We talk about the Fred B. No Distillery, Legend, Little Book, Blending, and we ask Fred No, and catch this one, if he's ready to retire. I think you might be shocked at his answer, and we're not going to give it away. All right, up next, we've got Fred Minnick with Above the Char, so continue to stay safe and enjoy the show. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Oh, I opened my email with excitement when I saw the headline, New Weller Single Barrel. Oh boy, have we been waiting on this one. Have we known about it for so long and wanted to see that press release and see the price on it and how it would be distributed and where, how we could get it? Oh, I couldn't wait to read about it. It was a few paragraphs long. And, you know, it said SRP of $49.99. Now, listen, I love Weller. I love Weller. Weller is probably, I think, the most successful product line in all of bourbon. You got Weller Special Reserve, allocated. Uh, Weller 107 Antique, allocated. Uh, Weller 12-year-old, allocated. Weller Foolproof, allocated. William LaRue Weller, super allocated. And every single one of those over the course of my career has had 90 points or higher from me. And they're all typically quite delicious. And those that aren't supremely delicious are better than pretty much just about everything else in their category. So it's it's a great line of whiskey, and Buffalo Trace does such an amazing job. Their whiskey's so good. But the fact of the matter is, as soon as that gets into stores, that SRP of $49.99 will be shot all to hell by asshole retailers who want to mark it up 400% by flippers who go in and buy a bottle and find somebody on the internet who will pay two, $300 for it. I know there's no easy way to do this, and I know Buffalo Trace really, really does hope that you, you the bourbon fan, can be that one person who gets it for $49.99, and they think that this is the way to keep everybody engaged and hope that that price keeps them coming back for more. But we got to be realistic. These SRPs for whiskey that's so great, so great. They're just they're just not they're just not there. I would love to be able to pay $50 for this whiskey. I really would. But the fact of the matter is, I would be willing to pay far more. And I don't know this. I don't know this. And the reason why I say the reason I say I'd be willing to. I'd love to buy it at that SRP, don't get me wrong. But I wonder if if they raise the SRP just enough to curtail the retailers from increasing it from $49.99 to $100. Or if it was just enough to cut into the profit margins of a flipper. I wonder if that would stop some of it. Now, I don't know. It's all based on consumer behavior. And right now, we're all acting very differently. So maybe this is the one time, because of the virus, maybe this is the one time we will actually see a suggested retail price of a Weller be just that on the shelf. And, you know, if there's anything to good come from a pandemic, which few and far between, maybe that's at least one positive we can take out of it. 
No, no, not even that's that positive because still we're in a freaking pandemic and that sucks. But I do hope that you can find it on the shelf at your local retailer for $49.99. And if you do find one of those, if there's two bottles there, grab both of them, call me, and I'll get the other one from you. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, I've got some great news. I am so excited about this. While the pandemic has taken away 100% of my live events, I mean, bourbon and beyond, gone. All these private tastings I've had, gone. I now have a way to book me for private tastings. Go to fredminnick.topeka.live. That's fredminnick.topeka.live. And you can book me for a private tasting. I've also got a regular uh, lecture series set up called Bourbon Revealed, the history, myths, and scams. So if you want to learn about bourbon scams, go check it out. But that's this week's Above the Char. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny and Ryan headed down to Claremont, Kentucky today, sitting in an office that we've uh, we've been familiar with before. We had an opportunity to sit with uh, this master distiller at one previous time on the podcast, but now we got him and his son in here, the the next in line, hopefully to uh, to take over uh, the throne. But you know, this is also 
an opportunity that first time we've had one of these people on the guests or on a, uh, on the podcast, but you've also had a, a history with one of our guests as well, too. I guess you could say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were well. We played football together, basketball. Yep. Uh, went to the same high school. I'm I'm a little older. He's probably more mature than I am. But, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was good sharing some funny stories yeah. about football and stuff. So uh, now I'm happy to see Friday. It's been a while. So uh, I always forget how great the view is too when we come here. Like I mean, when, do y'all ever just walk out and you're like, damn, you know? Oh or it's yeah. just oh, amazing. Yeah. But I go uh, sit on the front porch a lot. Yeah. I just want to get away from emails, go out there and sit. Yeah, marinate. That's See what's going on. So. Especially when the sun's shining and it's a no, nice cool. day. Yeah, so hey, super excited. through my camera roll, you'll see a lot of photos of just random sunsets or sunrises here just because, you know, sometimes you come in and it just kind of takes your breath because, like you say, you, sometimes you take it for granted even. Oh, I for know. Me, you know, being here every day. Well, yeah, when I grew up here, you drive 245 Louisville and you, like, don't even think twice about Bernheim Forest or anything. Now I'm like looking at it. It's like, oh, it's this magical place. Go see the Giants. Go see the Giants. Go see the Giants. (laughs) (laughs) So you've heard their voices now. So today on the show, we have Fred and Freddie No, Master Distiller and the uh, in-training, if you will, to be taken over there one day of of Jim Beam. So fellas, again, Fred, welcome back. Freddie, glad to have you on. Glad to be back. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about that view a little bit more too because I think it's something that – it's kind of, uh, Ryan, you kind of put it the best way. It kind of like takes your breath away a little bit. You know, you probably, it's one of those things that it might be, in the ba- not, if it's in your backyard, you don't really think about it. You know, even being in Louisville, everybody's like, oh, what do you think of Slugger Museum? I'm like, I probably haven't been there since I was <laughs> yep. in grade school. <laughs> I was like, you just don't think about it when it's in your backyard. But it's right. it's awesome to finally like come up here. And like uh, you said, probably after a, a, a day, you just kind of go out there pour yourself a glass and kick it in the rocker or something like that. Absolutely. It's a perfect spot. You know, when they said it's going to be my office up here, I said, oh, this is all right. This is all right. Is that I your watering be, hole, you know, yeah. after hours? I used to be in the basement with no windows where you couldn't see. <laughs> so maybe they figured they'd kept me in jail long enough. It was time to turn me loose a <laughs> yeah, little bit. Let you see the light. When did when did that happen? When did they, like, where were Because, so anybody that's unfamiliar with the grounds, the visitor centers, um, a bit, catty quarter to this uh, bigger white house that you see over mm-hmm. here. Where was the, when did the move happen? Well, in 2012, we opened the still house and our chief marketing officer at the time thought that I should be closer to the visitors because he saw my interaction with people just walking around and he said, we need to get you up there closer to the folks that are coming by to see. So why don't we put your office in the beam house, which it's kind of ironic. Baker beam, my cousin gave me a picture of me in the same room where I am, where my office is. When I was two years old, sitting in my dad's lap with my mom. So it's kind of like he said, you're coming home. <laughs> it's full circle, so huh? So come right back to where I was when I was two years old. And actually, my desk sits just about where that easy chair was Booker was sitting in. And this be up here real close. And Bean Baker actually lived here in this house. He was the last Bean family member, and we turned it into offices and a conference room upstairs. So in 2012, my office came from down the below the hill to the top of the hill so my vote would have been the knob creek house you know I up by the lake get away from everyone I, get I a nice lake that. view when they uh when they redid those, the house up there yeah i said this ought to be my office they said we'll never find you <laughs> said, you're never right come down you're, you're like right. that's the point yeah well so i guess i don't really know about the knob creek house so what where is the knob creek house or I'm, I'm assuming it's by knob creek but no, actually, it's it's on the property here at Claremont, um, and it's kind of funny how we acquired it. 
we went into it, it was owned by the Everback family, which owned the Cadillac dealer in, in Louisville back when Jim Beam was, was still running the distillery. And I guess they had signed a, a some kind of a agreement that we could utilize that water source. There's a lake back there. Uh, use that water source when we needed it for distillation purposes. And somewhere that had gotten lost. And so in the, was it early 90s? I think it was like 92 or 93. Yep. We ended up buying this property to gain access to the water. And then through purchasing it, we actually found out that we already had right of, of use of the water. So we didn't nearly <laughs> need the property after all. But uh, the Knob Creek team uh, put up some money to redo the house. The house was kind of falling down. Because like I said, we were there for just the water. Um, and now it's kind of turned into kind of a little getaway place we've got up on the hillside. On the other hill, we're on one hill. If you go back down the plant and up on the other side. Uh, Is it on nice, Airbnb? It was the White House on, yeah, they're on, they're on Airbnb. So it's a pretty cool place. It's got a nice lake there in the back. It's up, as we say, kind of up in the holler. So there's not much uh, not much going on up there. Dad's kind of got a little funny story about some people that stayed. It's kind of good. I've only heard two complaints, you know, in the whole time. Because we let customers who are coming in to purchase barrels or, you know, just coming to visit the plant to stay there. It's a three-bedroom house. And there was a group from New York, bar owners, and I went up and visited them, and they got them settled in and left next morning. They came to the office. I said, how was it? I said, I don't know, man. He said, it's too dark and too quiet. <laughs> I, said, I guess if you come from Manhattan, like, that would be. You have to put, uh, like, sound machines up there so they can, you know, <laughs> yeah. sleep. I guess if you come from New York, noise. you're used to, yeah, horns and yeah, what sirens. And then up there, there's no street lights. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, the, it's dark. When the sun goes down, it's dark. And I said, well, we could have had a lot of fun with them. We just snuck up there and pecked on the window yeah. or something. It's funny you say Played a banjo in the background or something. <laughs> <laughs> really get them scared. Right. <laughs> they were scared enough as it was, it sounded like, but, you know. I'll have to read the review on Airbnb. Great place, Lake, but too quiet. Too yeah. quiet. <laughs> three, three and a half. Three and a half star. <laughs> <laughs> So the other thing I want to talk about is the property alone. I mean, the bourbon boom is still growing. You all are still building warehouses. I mean, I used to drive by here going to Barstown uh, quite a bit in the past year, and you would be able to see there was, you could see the skeleton growing outside of the warehouse. That was, you could just see going down towards Barstown. What are you all seeing right now with the growth in regards of like, are you able to still acquire more property around you? Or is it just kind of like, hey, we just got to make use of, of what we have right now? Well, we're making use of what we have, but we're always looking. With Burnham Forest being our neighbor, we're kind of, you know, there's no way we're going to get put warehouses over there, but we're looking for adjoining property we can find any for possible growth in the future. Mm -hmm. so the problem is there's no flat ground here. No. Really. No, it it's takes a lot of excavating sides. to get yeah. things. I saw, yeah, I saw the, you know, they're knocking out some rock, limestone up there. Oh, oh, yeah. Is that for another warehouse? Or? That's actually where the Fred B. No Craft Distillery is going to go. Oh, okay, so, cool. Uh, the new distillery is going to be going there. We're getting some dirt work moving. But, you know, his point of Bernheim, actually they bought some land behind us here as well. So we're kind of surrounded on, on two sides by Bernheim, which – I mean, you know all their conservation work, so it's great for us as for our watershed to be able to have such great neighbors. Uh, but it does from time to time kind of uh, with, with no – I mean, there's just no land really available around us. It's all kind of you know bought up or housing has kind of come around a little bit as well. Uh, but luckily we do have a little bit of space at Boston where we can continue to put some yeah. new warehouses. So all is good for now at, at Beam. We'll see how it, it goes in the future because, you know, 
land is a, a very valuable commodity if we need to keep expanding warehouses. I know. It's, it's hard one of those things to actually plan out. If somebody owes the land, they're like, okay, now we're making pay top dollars. <laughs> right. Like yep. that, right? Yeah. You, oh, yeah. Especially when they hear we want it. Yep. <laughs> like, nobody cared about this stuff for you know, no, no. Yeah, 20 years. Now they want the, this land. Well, it is funny. Even, you know, we talk about the price of land around here and we're like, oh, man. But the people in California, New oh. York, they're like, what you pay you pay what for what yeah exactly <laughs> Thirteen thousand an acre what that sounds crazy it, yeah that sounds it sounds too cheap and they're like yeah they we pay that in a mortgage for one month or something like that oh, for yeah. some other places so so kind of talk about about the fred b no distillery like what's what's the grand plans for it you know what's the uh, what's the idea for it yeah, yeah i guess i'll kind of start on that one um it was an idea that i had had i guess really as as i was working on a little book and really getting into to kind of product development, I noticed that, you know, with blending, there's so many different aspects that you can go into and drive different flavor through bringing these different streams together. And so as I was actually sharing the first uh, batch of Little Book, uh, coincidentally at my uh, grandmother's bereavement, actually, our CEO had come down and we were just chatting, you know, after it was over. And he says, is there anything on your mind? And I said, you know, I'd really like to have a small distillery where we could do some experimentation, whether it be through mash bill, through operating parameters, uh, different barrelings, things like that on a smaller uh, on a smaller scale. And so I let him taste Little Book as kind of a teaser there to say, hey, you know, this is kind of some of the things we could maybe come up with. And so that's kind of how it got going. And it's kind of evolved over time as it's been probably about a four-year process of us getting kind of locked into, what, A, where we want it uh, down there at the bottom of the hill now, um, and then kind of what, what it was going to serve its purpose. And so we're going to be pulling into Booker's and Baker's production and kind of uh, basically anything that is um, in our small batch or super premium uh, category will be made in this distillery once we get it up and going. But it's also going to serve as kind of a playground, as he said a, a couple of times, uh, for myself and some of our R&D team to really get in there. And, and for me, it's a lot about learning about our current whiskey even, you know, having the opportunity to get in there and put, you know, new probes and things like that. As you expand distilleries, a lot of times your your eye for experimentation kind of goes to the wayside and it's more about production needs. Mm -hmm. And that and consistency and, and everything like that. You're yeah. exactly right, quality and consistency. And so being able to kind of step back, almost kind of start at a smaller scale um, and be inefficient on purpose to where we can yeah, actually learn. it makes learn. it easier to screw up. You that's know, right. And, You're exactly and fail right. forward, you know. You know, and that's kind of how I pitched it as we kind of got into some of the meetings was, hey, you know, I could make some of these adjustments in the distillery today, but when you all get a phone call and see the <laughs> amount of gallons that I've, you know, made an adjustment just to see what would happen, whether it be a good or a bad thing, you know, I uh, know that that's Sorry, this one right. didn't quite turn out right. We're going to have to scrap it. What? Right. Exactly. So it, <laughs> Giving us a good opportunity to be able to explore um, a lot further as as we try to look to expand the American whiskey category. That was actually, you just kind of answered my next question because I was about to ask, like, well, why couldn't you just experiment with something else at this? And then you just said it's basically because of the larger production. So if you want to change a different ratio of the corn to the rye or anything right. like that, then you're kind, everything you're, off. Yeah, you're kind of stuck with it for yep. the next X, exactly X amount right. of years, right? You're exactly right. I think a lot of it comes down to having that smaller batch size to be able to do some of those things, whether it's tweaking the grain or even, you know, we have a lot of unique vessels in our distillation system. Uh, we utilize some of them. We take some of them offline for some of our products. But as you said, at today's time, if I wanted to adjust that, 
you know, for bookers, we, we bypass a retention tank. If I wanted to bypass the retention tank and something else, essentially I haven't been making bookers. It's an experiment and we're pretty tight on still time. As you know, bourbon is just can't make enough of it. So really those experiments can, can be counterproductive, even if it, you do hit on something good, you know, cause you're missing regular production to do these things. Yeah. So Fred, what do you think about that? Are you like, I think it's, it's not cool. broke. Don't screw it up. Where, <laughs> or, you know, what, what are you doing? Or, no, I think you have to, my, my dad, he was always tinkering with stuff Yeah. over at the Boston plant over there, you know, and the Booker no plant. And you know, it was funny watching him, you know, we, Chicago folks would come down. They always visited Claremont. This is where the conference rooms were. This is where the bottling was. So over there, he always kind of called, I'm in Siberia. I can do whatever I want to do. And the people from the House of Knowledge, as he used to call it, they didn't know what I was doing. So he could. He could tweak things and do things like Freddie's talking, and they never knew. So he could make something and ease it right in and try different things. And nobody you know, ever knew. But now everything is so allocated and still time is so tight because, you know, in the 70s, they shut the Boston plant down. So – you know, they didn't really need the liquid as much as we do today. Mm-hmm. Every hour is money, big time. Because we need whatever we're making there. Now, Freddie can play and do some stuff, and that's when, when he took the ball and ran with it. There's a lot of people been trying to get this craft distillery for several years. But when he brought it up to Matt Shattuck, our former CEO, Matt jumped on it immediately. Then he goes back to, the, as I called it, the house of knowledge and said – we would like to do this. And all of a sudden, all this interest became, okay, we're going to do it, you know. So Freddie, where did you get the interest for uh, blended whiskeys? What was that? Where, what draw, drew you to that? It's kind of crazy. I've thought about it probably a thousand, over a thousand times of like when I, it, like it came to me. I don't remember talking about it in high school. No, I don't either. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, do you <laughs> no, remember? No, we're blending, but it wasn't. Yeah. No, <laughs> we'll talk about for that. sure. Yeah, yeah, we won't talk about <laughs> that. Blended with some other things. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, Mixer you put what, with it. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you can find at the time. Right. right. Yeah. No, you know, I guess uh, in reality, just through learning in the distillery, I, you know, I don't recall if it was even before I came to the distillery, but I know as my, I had an internship right as I was probably about a year and a half before I was finishing up college where I went around to each department in the distillery or in the facility, not just the distillery there, bottling and everything, shipping. And uh, it was kind of during that time that the the idea came to me because, you know, I had had it beat in my head. We used corn, rye, and malted barley for Jim Beam. So from a very young kid, I knew those three grains were what made the liquid of Jim Beam. But so as I got into distilling and, and learning, it just kind of took me to, if you took corn whiskey, rye whiskey, and malt whiskey individually and then blended them to those mash bill percentages, my thoughts were at four years old, would it taste like Jim Beam or would it taste like something not even close to bourbon, even though you're utilizing the same grains? And so really that's where it kind of started. Interesting. And um, so at the end of that internship, I went back to school. Um, I, I, I just remember thinking about that and thinking, I'm not going to ask anybody this question. So I don't feel like a dumbass because <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I mean, I was like, is this a stupid question? That's a question? fair question. The hell I wouldn't know. Right. So I got a chance later to do an internship with our R and D team. And really, really it was about me getting in there and learning their processes and how they affect our, our day-to-day business. And they kind of pitched to me to come up with a couple of prototype liquids while I was there. Um, 
One of them I don't really like to talk about, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> let's let's hear uh, it. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go on and, and bring the, it out. The best part about it, listening to these things are things that just never oh, see yeah. the light of yeah, day. You're yeah, right. Uh, so I tell it from time to time, but not too much. But so they said, we want you to, before you go back to the plant, want you to kind of act as a R&D uh, product developer and pitch to us two different prototype liquids. And they gave me a couple of rules. Uh, one of them could be a bourbon or a whiskey. And the other one could not be. So I couldn't just do two, you know, I couldn't just go get a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and say, oh, this is two new whiskeys that aren't out on the market. Right. Um, and then one of them, because I had been working with uh, flavoring, you know, we at uh, Pinnacle Vodka was very popular at that time. So we were working on a lot of different flavors in that aspect. So a lot of my time was working with them as well, learning what they do. So they had pitched it as one of them could be a bourbon, one of them couldn't, and that one of them needed to have some type of flavoring to it. Um, so I went to work on... Which also makes sense because even like the apple and everything like that, yeah. I mean, they're very popular Absolutely. drinks out there for a yeah. lot of the consumers. Absolutely. So I, you know, me being uh, me, I guess I, I wanted to knock out both of those rules on one so I could focus on the other and do exactly what I wanted. Fred, is this is this uh, just another shortcut that he's just taking? Is that what this is? Oh, he tends to get to the <laughs> solution very quickly. There you go. He's not going back a long road versus short road. He's going to take it, which is that's good. He was much like his grandfather. I see a lot of Booker in Freddie. It's uh, it's amazing. So you know, as a kid, I liked Hawaiian Punch, Juicy Red Juice. Oh, I think everybody Ooh, loved right. Yeah. You know they who didn't? didn't? Yeah. Um, but so I thought, you know, we go to the beach every year for vacation. I thought if I could develop. Uh, a liquid that I could just sip on the rocks or even if you just put it in a cooler and chilled it and just drank it neat. You know, I like fruity cocktails on the beach from time to time. It's nice and nice and warm out. So I thought I'm going to create this, I called it uh rum punch and it was going to be juicy red juice flavored uh, rum. Man, I thought you were going to say push up or something. <laughs> <laughs> Close, but not quite. Uh, That's a Howardstown drink. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to work on that. Um, and dad was there. This is where it was interesting. So as I'm getting ready to do my presentation, they're like, oh, we invited your dad and uh, I think even the plant manager to come see your presentation because I was presenting this. And I was like, great. Not only did I work on something with flavors and kind of rum, they invited my dad to taste these damn things. <laughs> um, but so that one, that one wasn't very good. It didn't taste anything like Hawaiian punch, juicy red juice. And I wouldn't, I, I don't know that anybody's even sipped. I've still got the sample bottle at home. I don't know if anybody's even tried it since I, since I made it. What did it turn out to be? Like, what, what did it actually taste like? It, it didn't taste, it kind of tasted like fruit punch uh, a, a little bit. Um, just a boozy fruit it punch. It was kind of a yeah. boozy fruit punch. Uh, Maybe you're just wasn't, be before your time. Like now the ready to drink category is like it. booming right now. So I'm, maybe it's just a few years too early. Might you know? need to revisit exactly. It. Yeah. One of our marketing guys gives me some some shit. I guess he'll say, you know, because he talks about a little bit. He's like, your next product's going to be that that rum punch. I, I promise you, we're going to make sure that's the next product. It's be you in a tiki out. shirt on the can <laughs> or something. Don't give him any more ideas. Yeah. He's got plenty on his own. Uh, but so that's kind of I thought you know got that one out of the way. I was walking around up there at the, the lab, and I seen some samples of four-year-old uh, corn whiskey. Obviously, we had four-year-old rye whiskey, and that's kind of where that thought re-sparked in my head was, I'm going to try this blend that I had been thinking about that I hadn't really talked to anybody about. And so that's kind of how it started. I created what I called it was Jim Beam Blended, and it was a four-year-old corn whiskey blended with a four-year-old rye whiskey and a four-year-old malt whiskey blended back to the percentage of the Jim Beam mash bill. 
It wasn't very good either. <laughs> it was very corn forward, you know. With our, it sounded I, great in theory, though. Yeah, like no, a brilliant I, idea. I was excited, um, and it, you know, to be dabbling in blending, I already had a good idea, you know, with the mash bill percentages that I was going to do these certain percentages. Um, so it, it was a little bit simpler than I, and then some of my blending has become as I've worked on Little Book, but it really opened my eyes because that one wasn't that great. Uh, but I tweaked it a little bit as I was in the lab just to see if there was any differences as you changed. And that's really what sparked my interest in blending was getting in there and, and trialing something that I had kind of had in my head and was really honestly a little worried to share it because I thought it might be a stupid question, you know, but I kind of come to learn that there's, there's not a lot of stupid questions. Sometimes the most simple question can lead you to, to some great things. What's, sure. what's kind of like the hardest part about blending that you've really found out? Like, is it just... You end up trying something, you're like, this ain't going to work, and I you would, get a bunch of wasted product. Like, what's what's the hardest part you've figured out about blending so far? I guess, the for me, the hardest part is, or I guess the most challenging would be, you know, if you've got four liquids and you put them at 25% each, um, by doubling up on one or, you know, doubling a little bit, not doubling, but adding a little bit more, say 10% more of another and dropping percentages, it's not as apples to apples as the flavor being closer to the original one stream mm -hmm. as those liquids kind of mingle together they really take on a different identity and i think that's where i thought blending you know if if i like this at 20 percent, if i had 23 percent, and i'm looking to get a say a longer finish and i know the other two liquids i'm using or three liquids i'm using have a shorter finish um you know sometimes you think by adding more of the one that is giving the attributes you think it actually throws the whole blend out of balance and has negative aspects of it the one good thing is you get to, to taste a lot of samples and when you're blending as i say with with straight whiskeys or straight spirits that that are phenomenal on their own it's 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 kind of hard to say that it's a bad blend it's just maybe not the exact direction you want to go so i get to taste a lot of good samples but i think the challenging part is when you have an idea or you're trying to hit on something whether it be like i said a longer finish or maybe a little more aroma on the nose uh, getting to those places from where you are is a lot more challenging than just maybe adding a couple more drops of this or that. And is there, go ahead. I was going to say, is, uh, after you come up with kind of your blend and it's like nailed, you're like, this is awesome in the tube. But then like, does that always translate to a bigger batch, you know, or, uh, or there are times when it gets to the bigger, like this does not turn out like they it, always tell us every barrel is a little bit different. It yeah. is, you know, and I think we do a really good job after I've got to a prototype in my, my test tube there. Uh, we'll go out and get some more samples of different barrels from the same lots that I'll be utilizing for a little book or, or whatever we're working on just to make sure that, because when we're doing a small blend, you could go get one barrel of each liquid and you could blend for months because, you know, it's just one barrel. It's a lot of liquid there and you're only blending in a lot of times, maybe 375, 375 ml um, sizes. So there's a lot of whiskey. So going back and then picking different barrels from that same area or same uh, date that it was distilled just to make sure it's hitting those profiles. So before I finalize, uh, we make sure that the liquids are going to be very similar. Sense. And then, of course, at the end, if when we're dumping for bottling, knock on wood, it hasn't happened yet. Um, but for the first three little books, each of them was, was very similar in line with the profile that I was looking for. Um, but we'll see how that continues to go. Cause we do keep reserve barrels. Just to, I never try to use every single barrel because if you want to make a little tweak and you've already dumped every barrel, you're kind of, kind of pigeonholed there. So hopefully, like I said, knock on wood that 
our process continues to go as it does. But as you said, it every barrel is a little bit different, no matter if they're side by side or in totally different warehouses. So it's it's that's kind of where the art comes into it a lot. For sure. And so, Fred, part of this is, you know, what was your kind of like past blending experience? I mean, has it have you tried to recreate something that, that Freddie's doing here? Or have you been focused on like production, operation and stuff like that, rather than sitting here and saying like, okay, well, let's start blending a lot of different products to see if we can make something new. Well, we, you know, we mingled a lot. It's funny. We don't blend, we when, mingle. When, when Freddie got into the blending, I was, you know, that was always a curse word in bourbon <laughs> That's country. true. That's yeah. True. You know, until, until actually a little people. book. You know, he really crossed the, the path that got people thinking about blending in bourbon because, you know, when you stay blended in this state, you start thinking about grain neutral spirits and colors and flavors, which that's not bourbon. But when we had the Suntory acquisition, I was tasked, and it was actually after Freddie had done his first version of Little Book, to work with uh, Sinji, the chief blender from Suntory, to bring East and West together. So we actually blended and created the product Legion, which it was essentially he was doing the same thing Dad did, where finishing bourbon in secondary barrels and then taking those fluids and putting them together. So that's where we uh, I kind of dipped my toes in, in the blending but we were tasked with this from the CEO of Suntory, and that's what they wanted us to do, to, to bring the two cultures together. And it was a learning experience for me. First, we had to learn the, to be able to understand each other. Our, our <laughs> accents are very, very different. Did you have a translator between you two? Like No, we used, the, I guess, our eyes. When we <laughs> tasted, you could look at each other's eyes and tell. He speaks... Much better English than I do Japanese. Well, yeah. <laughs> so mostly it was Sinji trying to figure out what I was saying. And I didn't, sometimes when we get on conference calls, I didn't have a clue. But, you know, I said, okay, whatever you say, Sinji. And he would send samples. Then we would get together whenever he was here in the States. Or whenever I was in Japan, we would sit and just taste, 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 taste. And it was a, it was a learning experience for me. But I kind of saw what Freddie did with his little book because the variant, just a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that can change it dramatically. Also, the mingling in the tank. Just because it tastes like this today, it doesn't mean it's going to taste like that tomorrow because we did the same with Legion. We would taste, and then the next day we taste it. We say, wait a minute, it doesn't taste the same. So the mingling together after you blended the fluids so we've got tanks that we built specially for this product down here, and it's got a slow roll agitation in it so to mix it up, and we don't just mix it, blend it, and bottle it. We make sure it sits in this tank, and the tank never goes dry. Some of the techniques that Sinzi uses in Japan, which over here before, we filled a tank with liquid, we ran it dry, and then we came back and did it again. We never left heels, as we called it, in there and dumped it on top of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that the same thing as considering it like the Solera method, what usually people call it in regards to that? Maybe a little bit, but we don't let it go completely dry. Be a little bit left and just dump it on top. So it's that's all new. And then we had to train our operators here at the plant because they weren't used to that kind of technique on production. So it was a learning curve for all of us here in Kentucky. And I know it was a learning curve for Sinji in Japan because he'd never played with bourbons before. He was amazed at the temperature here and the finishing, how quick 
bourbon will take on the flavor from, say, a red wine barrel or a sherry cask. You know, he was thinking maybe two summers. Well, after one, we'd already picked up flavors that he was ready for. So it kind of, it was like I said, a big learning curve, just like Freddie's learning with his. We learned a lot for this Legion, and so it's been uh, it's been fun to watch and to get involved even late in my career to get to do a little blending and play with it, and it makes me appreciate more what Freddie's been doing because I understand it's not just dumping things together in a graduated cylinder and saying, well, I want to do 20% of this, 30% of that, and as long as your numbers add up to 100, then you're good. No, nah, <laughs> that's not how it works. You know, It's trial and error, and then what strength do you bottle at? I mean, there's a lot of variables that you can change a lot by just a little bit of water, maybe, or you know, your finishing times. It was a uh, it was a great great experience for me. I just realized I've been saying it wrong the whole entire time. I always said legend, right? So legion. Now, now, at least I'm starting to say it correctly. I don't know if that's a, a <laughs> legitimate word or not. You know, our marketing. That's it's, it's coming from the the gospel of you right now. Uh-huh. So that's what I'm going to. Well, you start talking about the gospel of Fred, you might be in trouble. <laughs> I send you down some dark paths. <laughs> very, very dark paths. So, kind of also talk about the the time commitment that went into that. Because I mean, you just said that there were times when either you know he was coming here, you're going to Japan, you're mailing and shipping samples back and forth, like. What was the, I mean, I'm assuming it was a, at least had been over a year or two ago. Somebody said, hey, we're going to go ahead and do this. But how long did it really take to actually start from concept to finalization? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today, shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. How long did it really take to actually start from concept to finalization? Three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started, we would have meetings, like just to talk about it, before the product, you know, while the product was in the secondary barrels, and... They would incorporate the CEO from Suntory talk, 
and we were in one meeting and all the marketing folks had presented their, you know, what the bottle should look like and everything. And they started, went around the table, you know, I started, talk was sitting right beside me, just like Freddie is here, you know. So I started and it goes counterclockwise when it gets back to him. He said, no, 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 I don't like what you're doing. It's all about my new friend, Fred, and he patted me on the back. <laughs> so all the work, probably eight months of work that the whole team had done, pretty much watered up, throw it in the garbage, and let's start over. They were making it more of a Japanese forward. They wanted to put Japanese writing and stuff on the bottle. No, 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 no. This is about Fred and Shinji coming together. It's not all about Japan. So all of their techniques, and it was kind of wild to watch the faces when all this hard work <laughs> gone out the window. I sat there. I said, did you all know that was coming? No, no. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, right. We, we talk about just the uh, the bourbon and then the American whiskey category alone. And the just having the name bourbon next to it, it, it people are like, oh, they gravitate to it. And mm -hmm. if you were to try to take a product and try to sell it into, you know, not only your backyard, but into an American market and put Japanese letters on it and all this kind of stuff, it might not have that same effect to the, mm -hmm. the consumer at the end of the day. But that's what they... That's what Talk really wanted to do was show that we could use the Japanese blending techniques with the bourbon making techniques and bring the two cultures and things together and create a product that was really a collaboration between East and West and not just, you know, Shinji doing it with our whiskey or me doing it with him telling me what to do. So it was a, it was a true collaboration, which was, was fun. And Shinji and me got to be good friends and now when we get together, we laugh at, we were in London together. People see us talking and we, we kind of, you know, just, it's amazing. Our, I'm a pretty good sized fella. He's not a real big guy. So we, we look like the odd couple when we're together, you know, <laughs> and we play off each other. And Shinji always says, learning to understand Fred was the hard part. <laughs> and I'm sure it was for him. Yeah. Was, but we tasted a lot of different bourbons and it was, uh, he learned a lot about bourbon. What know, what uh where'd you uh, find disagreements on the two different mindsets or two methodologies? Really, the disagreement was wasn't really a disagreement. It was like we both tended to like the same thing. And I think Sinji going into it, I think he thought that dark color meant higher quality bourbon. And we quickly showed well maybe too much wood. Mm -hmm. You know, because we were using different woods and Freddie was involved in a lot of that tasting. He exposed us to a couple of different barrels that really changed the whiskey quickly to a place that we didn't want to go with. The What's bourbon. that Japanese, oh, Yama? Mizunara. Yeah, Mizunara. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get into We didn't get into that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's uh, the Bainbridge guy. Right. They do the Mizunara barrels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to taste some of that with dad and, and, you know, like Spanish oak, it adds a lot of color very quickly uh, because of the breakdown of the wood sugars. Uh, but it tends to also, if you continue to let it sit there, it continue, it continues to a place where it is way too much oak, way too much wood influence. You have a beautiful color in, in a shorter amount of time, but the flavor never matches up with the color that you would expect uh, yeah. from a, from a bourbon that's that color, you know, what kind of timeline is that? Oh, like six weeks. You can yeah. get oh, wow. quite wow. a bit, of, depending on, you know, if obviously it also depends on placement and warehouse or climate. You know, if you did it in the winter, it'd be a little bit different than in the summer. Uh, but yeah, six, to, I think it was six to eight weeks yeah. we were looking at where it really was picking up a lot of color. 
and picking up a lot of a lot of flavor as well. Almost too much wood influence versus because you know you, you spend a lot of time in the distillery making a mash bill or trying to perfect the distillation process, and when you get it into the warehouse, you know a lot of that flavor, sixty five to seventy percent of it, could be coming from that barrel. But you don't want to ever lose full sight of what you create in the distillery because what you start in the distillery, I kind of call that the the locks and the warehouse is the key that kind of unlocks the flavor that you've created with the you know the esterification and the barrels and things like that. So making sure you don't lose touch of kind of what your base spirit is 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 one thing we kind of focus on. And with that Spanish oak, you could just see it adds a lot of color, but it's not really tracking to the same flavor. You know, but as a blending aspect, it could definitely be utilized because you're mm-hmm. picking up different flavors and maybe in a smaller quantity, it, it can can shine bright in a blend. You know, as we start talking about barrels a little bit, one thing that kind of takes me back and makes me have another question was, you know, with the new kind of like micro or craft distillery that you're going to be coming up, you know, it's just distilling is what you're talking about. But think about messing with barrels as well. I mean, one, oh, absolutely. One, okay. absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that people always look at. They, you know, they look at everything in the, the process. That's everything from, you know, distillation to maturation. So what kind of ideas do you guys have kind of rolling in your head right now? Yeah, You know, just to kind of go back to my, my first point about the distillery of, you know, what we're doing today and having a better understanding of that. I think as you to your point, you do, when you're looking to create something new, it is about tweaking one piece or maybe multiple pieces of a process. Um, so to your point, it can start in the distillery or it could solely be just in the barrel. You know, how long the wood seasons, you know, does it season through one year or, or uh, two years? You know, that stuff greatly affects some of the flavors that develop in a barrel. We've got a great partnership with Independent Stave. Uh, we've been buying barrels from them for, what, almost 80 years or right. more than that, maybe? They've been in business 100 years. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, we've had a great relationship with them and, and I've, I've got a good relationship. I, I don't know if you know him, Andrew Wybrink from there. Uh, him and I are very close. We, we have lunch probably once a month or at least chat and anything he's working on, we'll talk, I'll share some whiskey. And so we've really already got some barrel experiments laid down. It's about learning from them to see what's the base difference from what, what we're doing on a daily basis. And then is there something that we maybe want to amplify or change to try to create different uh, flavors. So barreling will be a huge part of it because it kind of adds that that exponential mark to what you can do in the distillery once you change. Even that, just as simple as we use a number four char on all of our products uh, that are on the market, what happens if you drop that to a three char? You know, it, it does add a different flavor to the whiskey. Uh, so there's just yeah. thousands Posting, of things. The, the data on those things is insane. Like oh, I've, yeah. I've seen some reports they do for, you know, just barrels they give to certain distillers just to like try. And then the, you get like a 40 page report yeah. like of all the different compounds and flavors that are coming out of it. Absolutely. What do you think like of that, Fred? Science. Like, oh, are you like, it's wood like we don't need that data. We just oh, yeah. go pick some good barrels. <laughs> well, that's the way it was when dad was doing it. You know, they, they were so much set on the same. Dad was all about consistency. But today, people want different flavors. They want different products. They just want the same thing every, every time. So the experimentation that Freddie's doing with the guys from Independence Dave, you know, they want to unlock things in their barrels, and we'll work with them. And they, so we've got distillate that we know is good going in, and we've got a lot of warehouses with different areas you can put them and to see what happens. And down the road, we could both learn stuff. Maybe we can help them in their barrel production definitely help us on products we're trying to achieve because when you go into it 
it's kind of a crapshoot. You think things are going to be this way, and you can go to them and say, well, we would like to have, say, more vanilla forward. Well, they can work on that barrel, and they're toasting and charring and flash chars. They can bring more of those flavors out of the wood. So you can you can kind of dial in what you hope, but still until you put the barrel in that warehouse and let it sit. I mean, all the, you know, you know these uh, you put little bottle samples and bottle soaks and all this stuff. I was about to say, I forgot what I had for lunch yesterday, much less <laughs> to try to figure out like what we put in the barrel five years ago to know what this could potentially be. Long Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> A lot of different tabs. Oh, yeah. A lot you know, of tasting and smelling and remembering and. Because you do it every year. You'll say, well, this was this year. Now, next year, where does it go? Is it going in the direction you want, or is it starting to deviate? And a lot of that comes from where you put it in the house, even what house it's in. You know, these warehouses, every one of them is not the same. Airflow, all the things that come into it. There's microclimates inside of each one. Dad had a couple that he liked more than others that were built by Jim Beam. You know, and now we're still digging around looking. We can't put it all in one spot. So we're, you know, always looking to tweak and uh, try to do better things and always looking for good stuff. Yeah, I kind of want to talk about a little bit of that, too, is as you start thinking of new products and new extensions, because like, even last year you had you had Legion, Legion, am I saying it correctly anymore? Right. Uh, and we, then you had uh, Quarter Oak. You had a few releases, a little book. And, you know, from a consumer standpoint, everybody's like, oh, it's just like always something new. It feels like there's always something new. Are you all happy with doing that? Are you more, would you like to say like, uh, you know, I really want to focus on the consistency side, making sure that Booker's is always solid every single time. Like kind of give your thoughts on it. Well, we do the Booker's, we make sure and we protect, you know, the guardrail. We have guardrails for products. And Freddie and myself are in meetings with innovation folks. And it's our job to keep them keep them in focused, line. keep them in their lane, as <laughs> yeah. as you all said earlier, and and Freddie's using the meetings, you know, because some of these innovation folks, their job is to innovate. If you turn them loose, I mean, you don't know where the next these thing you know, they're lines. creating like rum punch. Yeah, you're exactly <laughs> well, right. Or yeah, or I'm in Chicago in front of you know some media folks with a product rollout, and it's rum punch. You know? And I said, like, what the hell are we doing? But no, we, we really, I mean, Booker's, we know what Dad created. And that product, the way he wanted it, and we'll always protect that legacy because he wanted his his bourbon with his name to be made a certain way. We make it like Freddie said. We bypass the retention tank. We don't add any water to it at any point. Dad was not a fan of single barrel. So when they start talking about doing a single barrel version of Booker's, I've got to throw a fit. Raise hail, cuss, crush, coke cans, <laughs> just to... And you've got to keep that legacy alive. Right, right. And he just sits back because he knows, he knows the buttons, and when they hit the button, he just kind of sits back. That's when I kind of step back from the table. I'm like, there's going to be a coke can flying, <laughs> or something's going to be going and when, on. And then, But I know him, when he gets rolling, he's just as animated as me. You know, And they start talking about, let's do this to another product. And then he starts saying, well, what are we going to do? And, he, and he's got good arguments and nobody can argue with him, but you just have to protect the products that we do. Now, are we against new stuff? No. But does it still in line with, say, a Knob Creek? You talked about the Quarter Oak. Is it still a big, bold, flavored product? You know, is that what, that's what Knob Creek's all about. So if we're going to do any innovation from with putting Knob Creek on it, 
it needs to be in that Knob Creek family. You can't go off and have a rum punch Knob Creek. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. So Who knows? Right? Uh, <laughs> if I'm around, it won't be. Uh, Wait till Freddie takes it. They put me in the ground. It yeah. don't matter. But, you know, as long as I'm in the meetings. But I think that's a lot of it. You got to reel people in sometimes who are, that's their job. They're young, a lot of them. And they're trying to make a, you know, a name for themselves in our industry. And they've thought of something and they're going to try to run. Well, okay. I don't care if you do a run punch, but do it. Don't do it with the Knob Creek name. Yeah. Do it with something else, you know. So that leads me to Freddie with Little Book. Is it always going to be a blended product or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think a Little Book has kind of become sacred to me. And, you know, it's the nickname that my grandfather gave me as a kid. Um, it kind of pays homage to him and the fact that it's it will always be a, a barrel strength release because. You know, touching on some things, growing up listening to dad do tastings and granddad do tastings, you know, granddaddy never, I, you know, honestly, it's kind of with dad, someone asked him, you know, how how do you prefer you us drink your whiskey? And he would say, any damn way you please, right away, because, you know, we make whiskey to share with the world. So to me, if I was kind of stepping out of that realm, I kind of took off of that and I thought, you know, if I'm going to do something different. I'd like to release it at cast strength. That way it gives the consumer the opportunity to enjoy the whiskey, like literally any damn way you want to from barrel strength all the way to, you know, just a couple of cubes of ice, a splash of water, or even, you know, I've been on the road traveling, uh, promoting little book a little bit and a lot of liquor stores or bar owners say, you know, we would like to make a cocktail with little book, but we don't know how you feel about that. And I'm like, no, I'd love it. You know, it's, it's great to see, different variations great so cocktail some, starts with great ingredients you're exactly <laughs> right and to go back to kind of my point of, of granddaddy you know he made bookers uncut unfiltered because he said it was the way whiskey used to be and in his eyes the way it was meant to be you know before prohibition where was or you know a little bit before prohibition we didn't have bottles or labels we didn't cut anything to any proof you would come here get your quart jar that you brought with you and you would just fill it up straight out of one of our barrels um, and so granddaddy with bookers really wanted to get back to the way whiskey was. Maybe so you can kinda, bring, we can bring that one back too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we've, we've thought about that in some marketing stuff. Is there a way to, you know, bring your bottle back and, and have it filled for a discount or something, you know, for, save that, uh, save that for recycling. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Right. Um, but you know, to go back to what you touched on about maintaining consistency and quality versus new innovation, you know, he touched on it earlier. Granddad spent his entire career, trying to make Jim Beam the most consistent product that he could because there were no automations. You know, a lot of the adjustments that we talk about making, whether it be bypassing retention tank, it's a manual automatic move today, meaning I have to type something in the computer. The computer recognizes that we want to bypass the retention tank. It shows up red on the screen. And then we go out there and physically make sure. Whereas granddaddy would have to go out there, turn a hand valve, change this, change that. So the automation has kind of helped us keep the quality and consistency from the still. Um, him and I still do a lot. He does all of the Booker's batching I help out from time to time. But so we're always working on new things and always trying to maintain that quality and consistency. It's a little bit easier for us today in, in today's world to, to maintain that quality. Um, then, you know, Because there's some valves on the top of the still that can greatly affect the proof. And once again, today I can just type what temperature I want to adjust it to, and then within ten to fifteen minutes, it's got into equilibrium at those temperatures. Where Granddaddy would have to walk out of the office, there might be a chain hanging from seven stories up that he has to, you know, and a ladder and shimmy yeah. up there. And, 
Uh, so it's a lot different of maintaining the quality and consistency off the steel, and so it gives us a little more flexibility on the backside to be able to kind of look through those different things and, and try to come up with with innovations that kind of fit those guardrails. And when they don't, he slams Coke cans. <laughs> and I take notes on how to slam Coke slam cans, Coke so in a couple of years I can I can right. do the same thing if I need to. You don't slice a finger while you're doing right, it. Right, right. <laughs> I don't yeah. slice a finger off while I'm doing it. <laughs> I got a question for you. So when we were running suicides, you know, uh-huh. at Bethlehem, yeah. did you, could you ever imagine you'd be sitting here doing Or I mean, or or was there ever a time that you were like, this is not what I'm going to do? You know, I'm, I want to... <laughs> I'm, I don't want to be in the family business. I, I want I, my own path. I'd say when we were running those suicides, <laughs> I was somewhere in between. I, Maybe after the suicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Um, you know, as I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. But really, you know, in high school, when granddaddy passed away, that's really when I kind of started to to really take an interest in the industry. I was always interested in the things my granddad was doing because we were very close. And even dad, I enjoyed coming to work with him as well. But I didn't really even know what it meant, you know. I knew Jim Beam was my great great grandfather. I knew that Jim Beam was the world's number one bourbon. But but outside of that, they really let me be a kid. And so younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I found out you had to go to school for an extended <laughs> period of time. It's a tough one. And yeah, it's hard. If you so. know uh, his track record, it, it took him a little while to get out of college, and it took me a little while as well, just with a general business degree. So that kind of went away, and right around, but. Even when I was saying that, granddaddy was excited that, that I wanted to be a lawyer because it's something that I wanted to do. And before he passed, he said, you know, you might get some pressure to come into the bourbon industry just because of who you are. But he said, as long as you're doing what makes you happy, just always know that, that you know, I, I support you whether I'm here or not. And so right after that, he passed away, you know, and I mean, it felt like thousands of people came to his bereavement. And I heard stories of how, you know, I just had a drink with your grandfather or, you know, I worked alongside your grandfather for two or three years, or hell, even 20 years. And everyone delivered that message in the same light of, you know, he was a very passionate person. He loved being around people, and he loved sharing your family's whiskey. And so at that point, it kind of became a no-brainer to me to be able to continue on this legacy. Is I mean, like I said, it was a no-brainer. It was just so much history. And, and to be able to continue on and talk about, you know, stories of dad, stories of granddad, even some that Jim, you know, passed down from Jim Beam, and to know that eight generations of one family has continued to stick to to this because you know we love each other and, and we love the industry. Uh, it's really cool. You know, this year's our 225th anniversary. It's just crazy to me to even say that. Um, 225 years. You know, it's just a lot of history there, and to be able to pass that on, hopefully, to my son and daughter. Uh, either one of them, if, if either one of them decide to come in or both of them, you know, it's very exciting to know that you're telling stories of your family and kind of keeping them alive. Uh, one of my good friends died when I was 19 and his parents said, as long as you boys keep their memories alive, they never die. And I've kind of kept that mantra to me ever since, you know, not only with, with him, but, but also I've kind of taken that to, to this industry of, if I continue to talk about granddaddy or dad or even Jim Beam or Jacob Beam, you know, their their memory stays alive and and essentially they stay alive and live on with with me and with, hopefully with uh with my kids as well and future generations. That's fantastic. That's a great story. And so Fred, I'll, I'll kind of lean this over to you a little bit. You know, as as Freddie is being groomed, I mean, how many more gray hairs or how much hair does he have to lose until you feel like you can kind of like 
start moving that crown over into his direction. Oh, he can take it right now. <laughs> oh, yeah? You ready? <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> I'm not ready yet. I'm, I still like having him around a lot. Now, I'm, you know, I mean, it's, I've been stepping back, and I've been telling the, the company for many years, you know, you talk to him. I mean, he's the future. Are you ready to retire? I'm always ready, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've never – I don't think I'll ever be like, it'd be just like my father. I mean, we'll still be entertaining and doing things, but as far as day-to-day work and sitting in front of a computer doing emails and all that, if it's entertaining customers, that's cool. I'll do that. The travel, you know, I'm getting to where the travel's more of a pain than it used to be. And Try to get from one terminal to the next. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, like going overseas and stuff. But as far as the day-to-day work, you know, Freddie's on top of it. I'm here if he needs me. He doesn't, you know, I'm ready to, you know, pass it on to him. And he's shown that he, he's doing a good job and he, he knows what he's doing. You know, and I guess one other question I kind of want to ask uh, about that as well is, do you want to, what is your, what is your ultimate goal for retirement? I mean, we, we know what Jimmy Russell does, right? He's got his scooter. He wants to hang around at the visitor center. He wants to sign bottles. He wants to meet people. I mean, is that what you want to do on a daily basis? You say like, yeah, you know what? I, I really like watching the prices, right? Well, I might, uh, <laughs> the prices are right. I've got a lake, got a lake home down at Barron River. Uh, I could see myself sitting on the back porch watching the water and going out on the boat and maybe trying to catch a fish or two. And, you know, if something's going on up here and they need me, I could, you know, in an hour and a half be, be right here. And Freddie needs me to help him out with, you know, entertaining or, you know, media stuff. I can tell stories, but every day, I don't think Jimmy now he's, he's a warrior. I mean, every day I, I can see myself coming down there maybe once a month or twice a month, hanging out and talking to people, signing bottles. But uh, as far as every day, no, I'm, I don't think I, I've been doing that for 36 years now. Yeah. And this is actually a funny question I just kind of thought of. Um, so, you know, Freddie, you talked about you having kids. Mm-hmm. What's your grandpa name? Are you grandpa? Or what do you go by? Papa. Papa. Oh, yeah. That's Papa's. Once it's County, man. Yeah, it's, it's everybody's designated Papa. As soon as, as, soon as little Booker <laughs> just says, Papa, I want, we're in business. <laughs> yep. That's bad. See, there that's you bad. go. And that's, that's, that's I think that's part of retirement. I'm like, I mean, right. we both have kids and we've got parents that are getting ready to retire as well. And, you know, they're, they're more ecstatic just about hanging out with grandkids more than anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they don't care about me. I like, <laughs> I like just watching. They don't even book. say hi when they walk in. They just yep. go straight to the straight grandkids. To the kids. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I said, we live next door, you know, homes are next door to each other in Barstown and I can be sitting out back just in the chair in the sun and little Booker comes out and he's walking around a little bit and looking and pops looking in over, like Kramer, looking over my you know? way. And oh, he's he's inquisitive little guy and just watching him, I think, man, he's the he's the. Is he sneaking deal. into that ham house yet? Not I, yet. I want to see this ham house. Yeah, I've yeah. Heard, come back, man. I'm a big country ham. We got boy. some ham here. You know, we ought to, have to bust some out after we get done here. Oh, man. for sure. Might be able to yeah. do taste. Yeah. Kind of talk about that a little bit because I know that we had we had a guest on previously that kind of talked about him actually, uh, Steve Coombs, yeah, talking Steve's about having a, a, yeah, having a having a ham with you all. So kind of yeah. talk he was about, this about ham Sandy. House. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, bomb, we, yeah. We've been curing hams. Well, Dad did it for years and years and years. Jim Beam did it at his house in Barstown in our backyard there is a meat house in the backyard old brick structure and dad Jim Beam cured hams there and dad did and it was funny out of the blue Freddie said dad can we cure hams like you and granddaddy did I said well sure ain't nothing to it you know you just 
So we went down to Boone's Butcher Shop there in Bartown oh, yeah. and got us some got us some hams, and we've been doing it every year. We do about a half a dozen, do a little experimentation and uh, trying different things to see, and then we the fun part is eating them. But you know, oh, some yeah. sometimes they turn out real good, sometimes not so not so good. So Boone's Butcher Shop's like the mecca for oh, like yeah. meat lovers. It's yeah. the most incredible place ever. It is. <laughs> People drive hours. I mean, we were down there getting so we make sausage and cure our own hams. Um, we were down there picking up some supplies, and I was watching him talk to this guy. I was like, obviously, I thought this guy hadn't figured out who he was and was asking about either industry or whatever. No, this guy was just from about an hour and a half away and just knew that he or he had told him he was from here. And this guy was just asking him questions about boons and if they drive there, what is it, about once a <laughs> month? For those pork chop yeah. specials. He drove you know? once a month, an hour and a half, to come pick up all his meat. He picked up the meat for his whole family for a month or a month and a half or something like that and drove every one Saturday every month to do it. That's awesome. You know, curing the hams for me, it, it was one of my fondest memories as a kid when granddaddy would ask me to do something with the hams because a lot of times I would just be a bystander watching. Uh, so as I got older, I, you know, I, I was so inquisitive to get back into that because it, it meant a lot to me working with granddaddy on them. And so, I don't know, what have we been doing about eight years now, solidly, eight or nine years? Probably, yeah. Uh, but it's funny you bring up Steve, you know, uh, Steve likes likes bourbon and ham, and he's one of our best friends. If you, if you, <laughs> yeah. you don't go anything past that instantly, he's well. A, he's now a, I'm your best friend because right? <laughs> <laughs> I love both as well. Yeah, so we enjoy talking with Steve about ham uh, and and curing hams. You know, time to time we invite neighbors, friends. So maybe you guys can come help us next time. Our our neighbors ditched us this year; they went on vacation, so right. it was went back to, to just Fred and Freddie doing it. They, yeah, they had to run off so. Dude, I will be there. They're I'm cut all out. We got two openings. We got two openings right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for learning. I can go. I can throw some salt on some. We yeah. can do that. Yeah, rub on it a little bit. It's uh, we just got to teach you how to slice. You know, right? Yeah, no, you're no have to do a better job, or, or give me a not so sharp knife. That's that yeah. Could be the that's no good either. I know. <laughs> nothing more dangerous than a dull knife. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess that's kind of like one of the last thing I want to kind of wrap it up with is you know we all have something outside of our day jobs that kind of keeps us. I guess sane, sane right? Yeah, right? I mean, out of our day job, we look at bourbon. So bourbon is your day job. So is is meat and sausage and stuff like that. Your kind of thing. Do you all have other kind of hobbies outside of outside of this life? It's kind of funny, you know. I would say ham and and meat. I guess charcuterie would probably be step one because we meat's a pretty generalized yeah, category there. Right. <laughs> we, we resonate together a lot over creating sausage or hams. Um, but you know, a lot of it too, though. It, here recently, we've been uh, playing electric football again. I'm sure you all had that as a child oh, yeah. or seen it. Uh, we just one night we're talking with the neighbors and it come up and we bought a board and now we've been eBay, been, man, or no Amazon. Amazon's uh, talk about amazing it. when it comes <laughs> you, to that. You get it next day, next you day, buy. boom. <laughs> a little too easy. A little prime prime uh, action there. Oh yeah. All right. But yeah, I would just say you know we get together in his man cave there in the back where we do a lot of the ham prep and then in the meat house. Just talking and hanging out. I think a lot of it is just him and I kind of getting together. A lot of times we'll even talk about bourbon. I think you know when when it it is a big part of your life, whether it be the actual liquid. Uh, like yesterday, we were out in the man cave. I was letting him taste some young whiskey uh, that I had created, and it's about two years old. I just wanted to let him have an update on it. Um, but then other times we'll just watch football or, or sports. We're big sports guys as well, so. It, 
A lot of it, though, it's around, you know, how are we coming up with new things to whether yeah, share with consumers. Like, your boy ODB got in trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah. He gets on me about my Cleveland Browns guys. Yeah. And OBJ right. getting out there. Your OBJ. Yeah. <laughs> giving out cash or whatever he was doing. Maybe he is an OBD at the end yeah. of the right. day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> o- ODB. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, I give him a hard time with the other. He's the NBA. I tell him it's the WWF, you know. Yep. Thinks it's, it's all staged. It's all it's all scripted. <laughs> you know, I almost looked like heading that Kansas City game Sunday. I said, WWF, here we go. <laughs> Down by twenty four and end up winning by thirty or whatever. Good TV. Yep, exactly. Good drama. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, fellas. I mean, it was really good opportunity to kind of, again, catch up with you, Fred. Freddie, actually have you on. And yeah. again, learn more about Little Book, uh, especially the plans that you all have. Uh, by the way, I guess with the the new operation down there, is there a, a time set of when the doors would finally open? Yeah, you know, so um, I guess really we're, we're looking at probably the first quarter of 2021 for actual opening. Uh, our kind of plan, we're looking at end of 2020 as – as a kind of soft startup, you know, when you've been making products on a, on a steel for long periods of time, making sure, especially for the bookers and bakers, that the quality aspect is going to be the same. So a lot of it will go back to, instead of creating new, as we kind of open this distillery, it's going to be about understanding the current uh, liquid parameters and how we're achieving those in a different plant, even though it will be scaled, there's still going to be operational things that will need to be tweaked in. So first part of 2021 or end of 20 end of 2020 first part of 21 we're looking at doing that and then hopefully somewhere I guess it'll depend on how how good we are at getting up and running it could be later in the year or it could be uh, right there around early 2021 so we'll have to have you guys back when the doors are open and 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 the whiskey's flowing. See what you guys think. Count us in. Count us in. Yeah, I mean, and I have to also kind of you know give you props and congratulate you on that because it seems that you're kind of going in a. It's not a different direction. Well, actually, it's not an opposite direction. Maybe a little bit different direction because you talk to everybody else and they're like, "Yes, we're all growing. We're growing bigger." What's that mean? That means bigger warehouses. That means another still more fermenters. And you're like, "No, no, we're gonna keep that the same, but we're gonna try something a little bit different over here, right?" So it's it's definitely like I said, a different direction, but it's still growing at the same time. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of it, it goes, you know, with Jim Beam's the world's number one bourbon. Um, the small batch collection has been around for almost 30 years that Granddaddy created. We've always been scaling our production. And I think, you know, you sit here in 2020 and and in reality, a, a lot of people would say that, that what we do isn't craft. And to me, that's one of the biggest pet peeves I have is when people talk about craft as a size versus a craft, you know. If you were to go, I say it a lot, and if I'm talking with people, uh, if you go talk to my operators down there and, and, and they and you say you're not a craft operator, you're not doing anything craft, you might get run out of there real quick because the things that we do on a daily basis, regardless of how big we've gotten, you know, we've stuck by a lot of our family's uh, traditions. Uh, a lot of them have been inefficient. You know, we run natural fermentation. We don't use any enzymes. We still make yeast the Jim Beam way, which is uh, a wet style that's propagated uh, in-house. Um, so even though we've gotten really big, we've still stuck by those things that make Jim Beam and our products what they are. And so being able to kind of go back and, and kind of go back to a craft size um, is, is great because I think it'll give us a chance to, to flex our muscles and say, hey, just because these guys have been around for 225 years, it doesn't mean that they can't make small releases of, of very crafty whiskeys and 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 unique kind of niche areas 
And that's something we're really excited to do is, you know, we've got a lot of knowledge of, of whiskey making. How do we kind of use that knowledge to expand the categories? And, and I know I'm salivating at the mouth right now thinking about what we can do. <laughs> yeah, cool. And I know the one thing that we haven't even mentioned is our partnership with the University of Kentucky. I mean, we've got the James B. Beam Spirit Institute up at UK. And so really the future, Freddie, will be maybe me if I'm still around. You'd be training the future distillers that will be making the bourbon for the future. And this little craft distillery will be able to, they can bring folks down here from UK who want to work in the bourbon industry and want to learn more about it. And so it's, it's opened up another realm of research and development. When you've got the resources of the University of Kentucky, it's College of Agriculture, you know, they're growing grains and it's just amazing the doors it's going to open up for us to be able to, you know, the future. And I think bourbon is here for a while. It's not going to die. And it's, it's a signature industry here in our st- our home state, and that's what we need to do. We need to do what we can do to help, you know, create the future. And that's, and also we might even get to recruit some great employees too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, him touching on the future distillers, he's not just speaking for us here at Beam. I mean, we're looking at hopefully we're educating the future of distillers for the entire industry. And I, I might be a little bit partial, but you know, to learn from the first family of bourbon that kind of really got this thing going 225 years ago on their, on their stills and know that they're still doing it the same way. It really gives to me why I'm excited about it is it gives these new distillers the opportunity to kind of learn how bourbon was originated, you know, and, and really talk through the, the aspects of bourbon that we still have from 1795. And whether you go work at a new, uh, you know, fancy state-of-the-art distillery or someone who, you know, was a former moonshiner that, that just wanted to go legal with it and, and has a pot still, if you're learning here, we're hopefully giving you the tools that you can go out and, and, and maintain the bourbon industry for many, many generations to come. Well, fantastic. Cool. Well, yeah. cheers to another 225 years, fellas. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, instead of people going to University of Kentucky for basketball and, uh, you know, like Keeneland, they'll be go for distilling. Yeah, that, you know, throw it in there too. I mean, right. you can do it all. If I knew that was an option, you know, <laughs> <laughs> who knows where I'd be? <laughs> Probably not in front of a microphone. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe in front of a be hanging with Freddie more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, gentlemen, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you know, if you see them kind of trolling around an airport somewhere, make sure you stay high, say hi and get a picture with them. I'm sure they'd appreciate it and grab a drink with them too. So, yeah, absolutely. come back anytime. You're always welcome, well, fellas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make sure you follow us on all social media, Bourbon Pursuit, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, make sure you rate the podcast, ratemypodcast.com slash bourbon. And uh, if you also like to support us, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit as well. Yep. Guys, thanks again. Freddie, man. It's good to see yeah, you. Good it's been you, too right? long. High school reunion. You're all grown here. up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you Let too. You, Mr. Mature. But well, no, thank you guys for having us. Yeah, it's always fun coming up here. And I love that view. Got to come up here more often. But uh, no, if, if you all have any uh, suggestions, comments, feedback, we love hearing from our audience and we get a lot of ideas from you and we do this for you. So uh, yeah, just keep those coming and uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cool. Cheers. Take it easy.